worship God, isn't it? We just praise you, God, because you are so worthy. Yeah. You've got to follow that somehow, Sue. <laughs> Should have gone first. Sue's going to be sharing with us this morning on um, Philippians, starting in chapter 2, aren't you? Yep. Yeah. So can I pray for you? Yes, please do. I need it. (laughs) Yeah, thank you, God, for Sue. Thank you for her willingness to come and serve by sharing your word with us. We thank you for the inspiration you've given her, and we pray that you'll continue to inspire her as she speaks to us. And pray that you just open up our hearts to hear what it is you want to say to us this morning, God. Amen. 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 Yes, this morning we're looking at Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. So, um, without further ado, if you've got a Bible, if you'd like to turn to that and I'll read it. And if we can have it up on screen as well for anybody who hasn't got a Bible, that might be good. So, Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 to 18. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit... If any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made nothing by taking the very nature of a servant. He made himself human in likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross." Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name. That is the name of Jesus and every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence But now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and crooked generation." Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. Well, the title that Graham gave me for this um, was Standing Out. So we're going to be looking at this chapter through the looking glass of Standing Out. 
Um, A bit of background about Philippians. This church was planted by Paul on his second missionary journey, and we can read about that in Acts 16. After planting it, Paul moved on to Thessalonica, and the Philippians had a collection, and they forwarded him some support. And we read about that in chapter 4 of Philippians. It's only a very short book. There's only four chapters. On Paul's third missionary journey, five years later, he revisits the church at Philippi. And you get the sense that there's a real bond, a real fellowship, a deep love and a connection that he has with them. The Philippians later hear of Paul's house arrest in Rome and basically they have a bit of a whip round and a bit of a collection and they send him some aid, they send him some financial support and they send it with a chappy called Epaphroditus. And he takes the money over to Paul and he ministers to Paul and while he's there he becomes ill and I dare say Paul probably ministered back to him. But basically when Epaphroditus gets better he sends him back on his way, back to Philippi and he sends him with this letter that he's written. And it's a nice letter, it's a thank you letter, it's a warm letter. You can feel Paul's warmth for the church. I'm looking at the first half of chapter 2 and the main theme through chapter 2 is service. Service and submission to God. Um, Which is a bit of a difficult one to be honest because quite often we want to do what we want to do and not what other people want us to do. Even if that other person is God, we still usually want to do what we want to do. And I thought about it. I thought standing out, being submissive, how do we do that? And there are so many ways. It can be our attitudes, our actions, what we say, what people see in us, what they hear about us. We can stand out in so many areas. And I thought, well... What can I hang this on? Not just for you guys to kind of listen to and take in, but for me to present. What can I hang it on? And I decided to hang it on the five senses of sight, smell, hearing, taste, and touch. So I'm just going to touch for five, three or four or five minutes each of those and look at it. Um, when I wrote this about six, seven, five weeks ago, I don't know what it was, it hit me how stern this sermon is. Um, and we've also had the stoning of, C- of Stephen, or Ray, and then we've had Andy's fantastic worship. So uh, I'm going to start with a joke, just because I feel we've got to start with it a little bit light-hearted, because it, it, it's, it is stern. So, um, a joke. It's the morning after the wedding at Canaan, and for the... Um, For the joke purpose, we're going to assume that Joseph is alive because he's not mentioned in scripture. So it's the morning after the wedding of Canaan and Joseph wakes up and he goes, oh, ow. And then Mary wakes up and she says, oh, And we're talking kind of pre-resolve anodins, paracetamols, you know. And Mary says, Joseph, Joseph, would you like me to fetch you a glass of water? And Josie says, yes, but don't let Jesus anywhere near it. (laughs) Right. Now for the sombre stuff. First sense, sight. In chapter 2, verses 2 to 3, Paul writes, Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, and being one in spirit and of one mind. 
Paul is writing about unity, not uniformity, unity. We are the body of Christ. In chapter 12 of Romans, it it emphasizes service as the body of Christ. We are united. We're not necessarily the same. So if you take our Christian siblings down the cartway um, at the Methodist Church, at the Anglican Church, we're not uniform, we're not the same. We've all taken a slightly different emphasis of Scripture and applied it to us. But there is a unity. We are still one body. It's the same Jesus. We are still worshipping the same Jesus. And Paul is, is, is asking them to keep united. And so my question is, are we united? What do people see when they see us? How do we behave? Because quite often, before we even proclaim the gospel, people will take in what they see us doing. To give an example of this, if you think of um, members of parliament, of government, and not unusual, we read that they've had an affair. No matter how good the white paper is, or how good whatever it is they want to propose and put forward, we've already made a judgment on what we've seen in the news. And before they've even promoted what they want to say, what what we have seen their behaviour to be has affected us. And I think that also affects us in the Christian world. We see it in the secular world, but we do see it in the Christian world. We saw it with Rory on God TV and the affair. We saw it with Todd Bentley after the revival. People make judgments on what they see our behaviour to be like. So how do you behave? What do people see when they see you in public? Do they see you united? Do they see you united with an integrity? My second sense, smell. In chapter 2, verses 6 to 9, I'm going to read it from the scripture. It's, it's, it's the heart of, of this bit of chapter where we say, we see, who, being in very nature, God did not consider equality with, with God, sorry, again, who, being in very nature, God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, by being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross. When you think of the second sense of smell, you think of fragrance, incense, sacrifice. This here is, is, is kind of centre to this chapter, this bit of text, centre to the book of Philippians, in fact, just central to scripture and salvation. Jesus, in his humility, became a human Jesus, when he came down to earth, he lay aside his glory. He lay aside his privileges as God. He didn't stop being God, but he lay aside his attributes as God. So he came down to earth and he walked as a human being, but in effect he left his God powers to one side. And then what he did was he prayed to the Father and he was submissive to the Father's will And then through the power of the Holy Spirit, did what the Father wanted him to do. And you might think, well, that's quite long-winded. Why didn't he just use his own power? But the reality is, he was showing us the template of how we should behave. 
We have that same power in us, the Holy Spirit. We should pray to the Father to discern the Father's will and then use the power of the Holy Spirit and pray for for that strength to enable us to do what God wants us to do. In John 8 we read, Jesus says, I do all these things that please him, the Father. This is our template. So my question is, are our lives fragrant with sacrifice for Jesus? Because the reality is, if it's our kids, you know, they come out and they kick a football and we think, oh, it's the next David Beckham and we'll sacrifice our Friday nights for the next three years going to football club. Or, you know, our child scratches out a tune on a violin and we'll sacrifice the next Saturday morning for the next five years going to orchestra. And we do it without even thinking about it. Do we have that same attitude when it comes to Jesus? Without thinking about it, do we just automatically sacrifice? Are we sacrificing our time, money and energy for Jesus? Is it second nature to us? Or is our aim to serve or succeed? You know, Jesus was the ultimate when he served. He took humility on. You know, he, he, he confined himself to a human body. I always say he took on skin. You know, he's the God of the universe and he confined himself to skin. And then as if that wasn't enough, he then, conf- he then took on sin. When he wore the cross on his back, he, bore, he, he took on sin as well. So do we, do we sacrifice our lives for Jesus? Third sense, hearing. In chapter 2, verses 14, Paul writes, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure children of God, without fault in a warped and a crooked generation. I don't know if you remember Christmas Day when Graham spoke about um, the flip card, gratitude, Gratitude and, and, and have gratitude, don't grumble. Well, we came in late, which is probably a shock. The Fenson family walked in church late. And there wasn't any space, and we sat at the back, and it was rammed in here. And I did tease Graham afterwards, because I came downstairs, and I said, Graham, fantastic sermon on having gratitude for crumble. And he said, what? I said, gratitude for crumble, and wound him up a little bit. But it was right. What he said was right. We should... Are we going out, and are we backbiting kind of behind our spiritual siblings back or are we standing against them when people hear things that come out of your mouth is it the right things that they hear sometimes silence actually is better than words as well I think Jesus silence um, when he was under trial spoke volumes and for most of us that are married or in relationships you know that sometimes it's actually better to remain silent and not have the last word In Proverbs um, 25, verse 18, Solomon likens words to a sword and to a club and to an arrow. And the reality is he knows that words can cut and they can bruise and they can pierce. So my question is, how do your words stand out to those that hear them? Do you use your words like weaponry or submissively to ask for forgiveness they can be used either way as I said earlier are you supporting your spiritual siblings in public 
or are you backbiting? The fourth sense is taste. And for taste, we're going to look at Samson. Um, I don't know if you remember in the summer when um, James and Emily Munden did, um, it was like a This Is Your Life of Samson, and they had, this, they had the green kind of table out, and apart from the red book, they had everything, because they went through Samson's life with wedding dresses and picture frames, and it was really good, it really stuck. But I don't know if you remember, when Samson fell in love, he took his parents, he fell in love, and he took them to a town called Timnar, and he, and he, and he took them to show them this, this woman he'd fallen in love with, and on the way there, he killed a lion. And when he then returned back to Timnar a little while later, the lion carcass was by the side of the road. And there were bees swarming around it, and there was honey inside it. Now Samson had been dedicated to God from birth. And with that dedication to God came, which was a privilege, came responsibilities. And those responsibilities came in the form of rules. He wasn't allowed to cut his hair. He would have stood out visually. He wasn't allowed to touch a carcass. But Samson came walking past this, this, this lion's body and he saw the honey and the taste of the honey was too tempting and he defiled himself. And he was a little bit smug because when he then got to Timnar, he, I don't know if you remember, he came out with this, this little riddle. Um, he knew he'd done wrong, but then he almost took it one step further and I don't know if you remember the riddle, it was out of the eater, something to eat, out of the strong, something sweet. But in all of his subtle gloating, the reality was he defiled himself. And my question is, what defiles you? Irresponsible internet sites? One that I have seen very evident in my past, the liquid lunch down the pub at lunchtime. You know, where it starts off as a once-a-month payday treat and then the pressure's cranked up by the boss so it kind of becomes a Friday lunchtime thing and then as more pressure's mounted on, it becomes a daily habit. Do you have the willpower to walk away from things that defile? I don't know who's talking um, about chapter 3 in Philippians, but, you know, Paul talks about lack of discipline and he says there, God's is their stomach. And the reality is that God has provided everything on this planet for humankind's need, but not for the greed. That's why we see starving kids in Syria and starving kids on the African continent, and we see obesity issues in America and in the West. How does the devil tempt you? You know, Samson had responsibilities. We have responsibilities. When we become a Christian, we carry Christ's title in our label. Which then brings me on to a tricky one, the fifth sense, touch. Are you submissive to God's will and standards regarding this? It's difficult. It is really difficult. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 16 that we should be equally yoked. He says, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. And it's not just Paul that says that. That's a theme that runs right the way through scripture. In the Old Testament, there was a guy called Balaam and he was told to curse God's people. He knew he couldn't do that. He couldn't go out and curse God's people. That was more than his life was worth. 
but he knew that intermarriage could do just as much damage. So he welcomed God's people with open arms, and then the Moabite and Midian women did just as much damage as a curse would do. And it's not just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, when Paul says, be equally yoked, it's so that your children are holy. Because the reality is, if you marry somebody who isn't a Christian, aside from the fact that you've got the devil for the fa- your father-in-law, you've got two sets of rules when your kids are growing up. You know, one parent says, you know, it's okay to live in sin. The other one says, well, actually, no, we've got a standard. We've got, we've got something we should stand by. You know, the other partner says, well, it's okay to have sex before marriage. And, and the other parent says, well, actually, no, that's not God's way. That wasn't his original plan. God didn't make these rules because he's a big bad daddy. He made these rules to help us, to guide us, to, 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 to help us attain what he wants for us. So that begs the question for this sense, are you standing out in the relationships that you keep? Are you standing out in the friendships that you invest in? Are you flirting with the world or are you modelling Jesus' values? So to summarise, sight. What do people see in your behaviour? Smell. Is your life fragrant with sacrifice for Jesus? Hearing. Do your words stand out to others but for the right reasons? Taste. Do you walk away from things that defile And touch, are you modelling God's standards? Because to conclude, our lifestyle is a serious message. Before we go out and even proclaim the gospel of Jesus, our lifestyle is a serious message. Are you standing out? Are you set apart? God tells us to be holy and set, that means set apart. It doesn't mean separated from the world because then we'd be no worldly good. But we are to stand out, we are to live set apart, we are to show people what it is like to be God's children. And it's a thread that runs right through the Bible. You know, in the law, in Leviticus, God says, be holy. In the prophets, we're warned against worldly alliances. In the Gospels, in Matthew 6, do not be like them. In the epistles, Romans 12, do not be compliant to their ways. It's difficult. It's quite a difficult message for me to give out. But the bottom line is, when we make Jesus our Lord, he is our Lord of everything. Our entertainment choices, our time, our money and our will. I often think, and this isn't a criticism of here, this is a general Christian criticism, that we've watered down the salvation prayer to this kind of, I don't know, palatable prayer that's easy to swallow. And we say to people, if you want to meet Jesus at the end, come up the front, we'll introduce you to him, we'll pray for you, and and, and we'll call it up. And, and, And it's sometimes it comes over that it's like a finishing line, like, hallelujah, they found Jesus. But the reality is, it's actually the starting line. Because it's from that point when people meet Jesus that they should model his values and should nurture the behaviour which Jesus wanted. 
And I've thought about it, the contrast to the world. This is what we're realistically asking people to sign up to when they give their life to Jesus. Christian perspectives versus worldly perspectives. Christian perspective, put others first. Worldly perspective, think of yourself. Christian perspective, give generously. The worldly perspective, get more. Christian perspective, save yourself physically. Worldly perspective, lose yourself physically. Christian perspective, have self-discipline. Worldly perspective, indulge. Christian perspective, live for eternity. Worldly perspective, live for now. We have to govern life, our lives, with eternity's values, not worldly ones in mind. And that is how we stand out. In Titus chapter 2, verses 16, it says, They profess they know God, but in their works they deny him. And the reality is, it's spiritual adultery to be married to Christ and be in love with the world. We have to be submissive to God's will. And it won't always match ours. In fact, if I'm honest, most of the times it won't match ours. But we have to be submissive to God's will. And in the process of walking that out, we have to stand out. Amen.